You're listening to The Virtuous Mind, a podcast from Providence Christian College that discusses all facets of the human experience and the liberal arts from a biblical worldview. I'm your host, Dr. David E. Alexander. What are we living for? However we answer that question, it better be something that we are also willing to die for. Studying history gives us insight into the courage and conviction of our forebears. Many were willing to sacrifice everything, including their lives, to spread the gospel. Many were willing to sacrifice everything to counter perversions and adulterations of the gospel. Hearing such stories of bravery and commitment is not only inspiring, but also convicting. Such stories can awaken within us a longing to reacquaint ourselves with something so precious, so valuable as to be willing to die for. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Daniel Borvin, pastor of Grace United Reformed Church in Torrance, California. Dan received his doctorate at Oxford, studying the French Reformation. Dr. Borvin walks us through some of the major moments of the French Reformation, recounting the devotion of the French reformers to evangelicalism and their willingness to give all for the sake of Christ's gospel. Dan encourages us to study our history, the history of the church of God's people. Doing so, he tells us, is studying family history, the stories he recounts, the lessons learned, and their applications for today highlight the need we all have to study and know Christian history. Christians throughout the millennia have faced persecution, and millions of Christians face it today. Those of us in the West should prepare for it now, and the best guide to doing so is the lives of those who have faced it in the past. Dan, it's so good to have you on the program today. Thanks so much, David. It's great to be here. Before we begin, I'd love to hear a little bit more about yourself and your educational background in the area of the French Protestant Reformation. Such a fascinating topic. Yeah, I'm the pastor of Grace United Reformed Church in Torrance, California, part of the United Reformed Churches in North America. Prior to that, I did my doctoral work at Oxford University, where I studied the French Reformed Church of the Reformation era. And particularly, I looked at a guy named Pierre Dumoulin, who was a pastor in Paris in the early 17th century. He died in 1658. He was kind of the main guy in the French Reformed Church. He was the most well-known, I call him the uh, theological hitman of the French Reformed Church, because anytime there was a controversy, anytime they needed a work of polemics issued against an opponent, the church would commission Dumoulin to write it. So he wrote against Roman Catholics, mostly early in his pastoral career. That's what I did my doctoral work on. But then later he wrote against Arminians and all other aberrant forms of theology over the course of his ministry and uh, was really a great use to the church with his writing that went far beyond even the borders of France, where uh, many were translated into other languages. Even his own lifetime, many were translated into English and are available today. So you can find Pierre Dumoulin uh, on Google Books, and quite a few of his works are in English. 
You know, it seems to me that we don't hear much about the French reformers. What drew you to focus on the French Reformation? I was interested in their perseverance in the midst of difficult circumstances. The French were some of the most persecuted of all the Protestants in the Reformation era. And despite that, they persevered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God really blessed them in many ways. And the church actually flourished uh, even in the midst of persecution. And then the persecution was more intense and less intense at times, but all the while God grew his church. And I think they can be inspiring to us today that God was faithful to them even when there were physical threats to them. God was faithful to them. He preserved them and their worship was uh, still pure even in very difficult circumstances. We often think of, if you have some history, of the, the Huguenots, I'm sure there's a proper French pronunciation of the word. Can you give us an overview of the Huguenots? Yeah, the uh, French Reformed are known as the Huguenots with the French pronunciation, the silent T at the end, the Huguenot. Uh, we don't know exactly the origin of that term. Some people think it probably started as a slur against the French Protestants, and they sort of adopted it as a moniker for themselves. We don't know the actual beginnings of the French Reformed Church. There's not a, a clear date as to their origin. But we do know there were rumblings in Paris in the 1520s. There were some accusations of Lutheranism against some of the faculty at the University of Paris, some of the theology faculty. And there seems to be this underground Protestant movement happening in France and particularly in Paris in the 1520s. But then the movement really picks up in the 1530s. And a notable occasion is in 1533, when John Calvin is implicated in the address by his friend, a man named Nicholas Kopp, who is a rector at the University of Paris, he gives an address, which is basically a Protestant sermon on the uh, Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a very Protestant sermon. He criticizes what he calls Catholic theology. And for this, he is branded a heretic and he has to flee. The authorities come to arrest him, but he escapes. And Calvin then is guilty by association. Now, some people think that Calvin wrote this address by Nicholas Kopp. Some people think he at least influenced it. Either way, he's guilty by association with Kopp. And so the uh, civil authorities come and they search his room. They confiscate some of his papers. And Calvin, too, has to flee Paris. He escapes dressed in the garb of a vine dresser, a farmer who works in uh, the vineyard. And he's carrying a garden hoe as he makes his way out of Paris, fleeing the civil magistrate. So the incident with Nicholas Kopp and Calvin fleeing, is that the early beginnings of the Reformation in France? The address by Nicholas Kopp certainly is one of the key early events of the Reformation in France, and it arouses the ire of the French king at the time, Francis I, certainly a staunch Roman Catholic, and he is determined to put an end to this growing Protestant movement. And so about a month after Cop's speech, he orders the extermination of what he calls the damned Lutheran sects. So now there's official state persecution happening of the French Protestants, the French Reformed. And that desire to eliminate the Protestants only increases the following year with what is known as the Affair of the Placards. 
these placards or posters were hung in cities of France. It was basically a form of graffiti. They would attach these posters around the city with pro-Protestant and anti-Catholic lettering on it. And uh, one said that the mass was a horrible, great, and insufferable abuse that was in direct contrast to the Holy Supper instituted by Christ, the sole mediator and savior. So the Protestants go around the cities of France. They put up these placards promoting Reformed Protestantism. And of course, the Roman Catholics are none too pleased with this. And following this affair of the placards, there are more than 200 arrests made and 20 executions of Protestants in the next few months. You mentioned that quote about the Lutherans. This is really early on in the Reformation. So if you were opposing Catholicism, you were basically lumped in as a Lutheran. Is that correct? Yeah, basically anyone who opposes the authority of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, anyone who espouses ideas of Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, in the early 1520s is labeled a Lutheran. The word Protestant doesn't really come about till the end of the 1520s, 1528, 1529. So Lutheran is the first name that is attached to this movement that's happening that is opposing the status quo in the Catholic Church. The term Lutheran certainly starts as a slur against what would become known as the Protestants. Protestant as well is begins as a slur by the Roman Catholics and then is adopted by the Protestants as a name for themselves. Many uh, titles throughout history, church history, have begun that way, begun as a a slanderous term, and those who are on the receiving end of that often adopt it for themselves and uh, wear it as a badge of honor. That, that makes me think of our own story with our mascot here at Providence Christian College. As you know, our mascot is the sea beggar, and the sea beggars have a similar history. What was meant as an offensive term was a name that they claimed as their own. Now, you mentioned the affair of the placards. Is this where we begin to see Calvin really rise to the forefront? Calvin's initial great contribution to French Reformed Protestantism is his work of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He publishes his first edition of the Institutes in 1536. And the Institutes is many things, but one thing that it certainly is, is an apology. It's a defense of the Protestant faith, or what then was known as the evangelical faith. Calvin is attempting to make a defense for French evangelicals, French Protestants, and he makes an attempt to convince the French king, Francis I, that the Protestants are not rebels. They're not trying to overthrow the king. They're not leading a separatist movement of any kind. And he attempts to convince Francis of this because, again, Francis is incensed by the affair of the placards. He thinks the Protestants are a bunch of anarchists and rebels. And so he wants to stamp that out, stamp out the entire movement. But Calvin writes in defense of the Protestants, he writes a preface of the Institutes that's a letter to Francis I. And as a good lawyer, Calvin was trained as a lawyer early in life before he went into the pastorate. As a good lawyer, he argues for justice. He's not pleading for clemency. So he makes his case that, of course, Christianity is the established religion in France and that Christianity is defined by the Nicene Creed. This is not controversial at the time. Roman Catholic or Protestant accepts this. But then Calvin's genius move is that he intends to show that the religion of the evangelicals is perfectly within the bounds of the Nicene Creed. 
Therefore, to persecute the evangelicals would be unjust because they are orthodox Christians. They accept, they believe the Nicene Creed. Calvin does not argue for religious toleration in his letter to Francis I. He's not arguing for a plurality of churches within the kingdom of France. He's arguing that the evangelical faith is the true faith of the early church fathers, those who composed the Nicene Creed, and he's arguing that the Protestant faith is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that's confessed in the Nicene Creed. So it's a brilliant argument that he gives in defense of the evangelicals in France, and so he concludes saying there's only one true church, There can be only one true church established in France, and the evangelical church is it. Unfortunately, that did not convince Francis I. He was not convinced by Calvin's letter, if he ever read it. And uh, the persecution continued despite Calvin's great efforts. So was Calvin successful? I suppose it depends on what we mean by successful. He certainly is successful in presenting the evangelical faith to the Roman Catholic king. He's successful in providing an excellent apology, defense of the evangelical faith. He's successful in the institutes in uh, providing a manual of doctrine and uh, Christian life for the French Protestants. So there are many successes that he has with the institutes, but he's not successful in convincing the king to convert to Protestantism or to completely end the persecution of Protestants in France. So the persecution continues into the 1540s, into the 1550s, and really increases during that time. We don't know exactly how many Protestants were killed. Somewhere between 5,000 and 8,000 French Protestants were martyred for their faith prior to 1560. Despite that, despite the intense persecution, Protestantism continued to grow. Churches were established in France such that by 1559, they hold the first national synod of the Reformed churches in France. At that synod, they adopted what we might call presbyterial polity. It's not capital P, Presbyterian, because that's associated more with the British Isles, but it's certainly Presbyterial in its polity, primarily in the parity of ministers. They believe that there should not be a hierarchy amongst officers of the church. So the first canon adopted by that synod read, No church nor church officer, be he minister, elder, or deacon, shall claim or exercise any jurisdiction or authority over another. So they believe that all Church officers had equal standing. Each man has one vote. They had no bishops or any other form of hierarchy that way. And they maintained their presbyterial polity for the next hundred years. Never were they tempted to establish bishops or anything like that. They continued to maintain the parity of ministers in the French Reformed Church. Also at that first synod, they adopted the French Confession of Faith. Sometimes it's known as the Gallican Confession. It's been translated into English. It's a very faithful, reformed confession of the 16th century. Uh, Some notice similarities to the Belgic Confession, certainly a more well-known confession of faith from that era. And the French Confession certainly was influenced by Calvin. Some believe that Calvin actually wrote an early draft. We don't know for sure. It certainly is influenced by Calvin, and it certainly reflects his theology. So the French Confession of Faith is a very helpful, very useful Reformed confession from the Reformation era that can still be edifying for Reformed Christians today. Why do you think the French Reformers had clarity regarding Presbyterial government? The French Reformed were committed to 
Presbyterian government, not only because they saw it as biblical, but they also were not tempted to establish bishops because there was no possibility of influencing the Catholic French government. So we see in other Reformed churches of the era, in England, even in Scotland, that bishops are established, and bishops often have the ear of the king. And especially in the Church of England, even today, uh, bishops are members of the House of Lords. The archbishops in England are members of Parliament, and they have one foot in the political realm and one foot in the church. Well, there was no possibility of that for the French reform. The French king was never going to be influenced by them politically. So they were never tempted to establish bishops as a means of having political influence. They maintained what they believed was the system of government established in the New Testament and really maintained the spirituality of the church in that way and were protected from being seduced by the possibility of gaining the ear of the king. So coming into the mid-1500s, it seems like the French reformers were gaining some footing. What happened during that period? There's great optimism at the beginning of the 1560s with the French reformed. One uh, Huguenot nobleman wrote in 1562, we have, thanks to God, churches in nearly all the cities of the realm, and soon there will be scarcely a place where one has not been established. Sadly, that optimism is uh, greatly extinguished by what became known as the French Wars of Religion. These are a series of at least eight wars that last into the 1590s, beginning in the 1560s all the way to the 1590s, with Catholics and Protestants squaring off against one another. And they began in 1562 with the massacre at Vassy. There's a Catholic duke passing through the area of Vassy. He's on his way to Paris. He hears church bells ringing. And he knows a Roman Catholic mass would not be celebrated at that time. So he knows these church bells must be Protestant. So he sends his men to investigate, to break up what had to be a Protestant worship service. His men are met with some resistance and violence erupts. Many dozens, if not hundreds of Protestant worshipers are massacred there in 1562. This sparks the French wars of religion, and there is great bloodshed between Catholics and Protestants for the next 30 years. The greatest incident of uh, violence, perhaps, of the French wars of religion is St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which happens in 1572. At this point, the Protestants and Catholics have been warring for about 10 years. There is some attempt made at peace in a marriage between Roman Catholic and Protestant nobility. The Protestant King of Navarre, Navarre was a small kingdom in the south of France at the time. The Protestant King, Henry Bur or Bourbon was married to the sister of the King of France, Margaret. The King of France is Charles IX at this time. So the sister of the king is marrying a Protestant king. The only problem is the mother of the bride is not pleased with this arrangement. She is not interested in peace. She is interested in eliminating the Protestant movement and its leadership in their entirety. This desire to eradicate Protestantism completely goes back many years, even to Princess Margaret's brother, King Francis II. The Venetian ambassador wrote that Francis II wanted to fall upon the Protestant leaders, punish them without mercy, and thus extinguish the conflagration. 
So there were some Roman Catholics who did not desire peace. They desired the extermination of Protestants altogether. And Catherine de Medici, the Queen Mother, was one of the primary driving forces in the movement to extinguish Protestantism altogether. And her target was the Admiral de Coligny. He's the leader of the Protestant army during these wars of religion. He is in Paris along with the rest of the Protestant nobility for this wedding. And Catherine plans an assassination of Coligny. He is shot on the 22nd of August in 1572, but the wound is not fatal. He survives. Now Catherine has a dilemma. If Coligny lives, the Protestants will retaliate. So she decides the only solution is outright genocide. A representative of the Pope was there. He said if the admiral had died from the shot, no others would have been killed. So if the assassination had been successful, that probably would have ended the conflict temporarily. But because Coligny survives, now all the Protestants have to be eliminated. So Catherine convinces her son, the king, after many hours of cajoling him, that genocide of the Protestants is the only option. So he says to her, since you deem it well to kill the admiral, I agree, but all the Huguenots in France must likewise perish, so that not one be left later to abrade me. So again, because he fears retaliation, he thinks his only option is to eliminate any Protestant threat. So on the morning of the 24th of August, St. Bartholomew's Day, Catholic troops enter Coligny's room where he's recovering from his gunshot wound. They stab him in the chest, they throw his body out the window, and then they remove his head. Soon after, the Catholic soldiers fan out into the neighboring houses and they kill all the Protestants there. Then violent mobs sweep through the city of Paris, killing Huguenots wherever they see them. The massacre continued in Paris for days. We call it St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, but it continues for days, even weeks and months into the surrounding regions. We don't know exactly how many died in Paris, at least a thousand, maybe up to three thousand. The violence spills into the countryside throughout France, and somewhere between 2,000 and 20,000 Protestants are killed in St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Thinking about all of the bloodshed reminds me of what was happening in Geneva to train pastors for this growing French Reformation. Can you speak to the training of pastors in Geneva, uh, assuming that was under Calvin? As the church in France grows, even in the midst of great persecution, there is a tremendous need for ministers. They can't keep up with the need for pastors as these churches are established in France. Between 1555 and 1562, Geneva sends 88 ministers to France, but that is not nearly enough. They needed many more men to fill pulpits. They established in Geneva in 1559 the academy to train pastors. Men would come from France to Geneva. They would be trained at the academy by Calvin, by Theodore Beza, his right-hand man, by the other pastors and theologians in the city. And then they would be sent back to France to pastor churches. Soon, the academy in Geneva became known as the School of Death, because so many men who came from France to be educated there went back to France and were martyred for the faith. And they knew it going in. What is so remarkable, these young men, knowing that there was a great likelihood that they would not survive to a ripe old age because of the persecution in France, and yet they endured. They continued in the path to the ministry. They pastored faithfully in France, and many did pay the ultimate price, giving their life for the faith. 
Speaking of the St. Bartholomew's Day massacres and the murderous persecution that was ignited from that day on, it seems like these killings mark the end of the Reformation, a, a squashing of the Reformation in France. What happened in the years that followed St. Bartholomew? After St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in 1572, the wars of religion continue in the 1570s and 1580s. By the end of the 1580s, the situation in France is very complicated. Certainly, the Protestants are warring against the Roman Catholics, but also Roman Catholics are warring against each other. There is a faction known as the Catholic League, who were, in their own minds, the most devoted of Catholics. They're warring against the more moderate Catholics who were desiring to live in more harmony with uh, the Protestants. In 1589, the King of France, Henry III, is assassinated by a Dominican monk. This reveals the chaos that's happening in France. Here is a French king assassinated by a French Catholic king assassinated by a Dominican monk. After Henry III's assassination, the rightful heir to the throne is Protestant Henry Bourbon, the King of Navarre, whose wedding uh, was the occasion for St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. He has the rightful claim to the throne. The problem is he's Protestant at this point. So Roman Catholics certainly would not consent to having a Protestant King of France. Henry is a great military leader. He is able to take control of the entire country of France, except for the city of Paris. He can't quite break through Paris. So there's a stalemate. What to do? In order to break this stalemate, Henry decides in 1593 to convert to Catholicism. He abandons his Reformed Protestantism and unites himself with the Roman Catholic Church. And allegedly, he said, Paris is worth the Mass. In other words, the French crown is more important than religious convictions. The tensions diminish a bit between Catholics and Protestants after Henry's conversion, and the most significant move he makes with regard to the state of religion in France is the Edict of Nantes. Henry issues this in 1598, and it ultimately satisfied neither Catholic nor Protestant. It did allow for temporary coexistence of Protestants and Catholics. He was trying to bring an end to this violence that had been so prevalent in France for many decades at that point. But his ultimate goal was to reunite all of France in the Catholic faith. His goal was one king, one faith, one law, he said. So he never intended to give full toleration to Protestants in France. Nevertheless, the edict did grant relative freedom of worship. There were restrictions exactly on where they could worship and how and when, but there was relative freedom of worship. The, the Protestants still did have to observe all the Roman Catholic feast days. They still had to pay the ecclesiastical tithe, but they now had more freedom to worship. And so for the next 87 years, the French Reformed Church did flourish. And the words of John Calvin rang true when he said after the first massacre of the Huguenots at Vassy in 1562, it is in truth for God's church, in whose name I speak, to endure blows and not to strike them. Remember, though, that this is an anvil which has broken many a hammer before now. Many throughout the centuries have tried to eliminate Christ's church. Many despots, dictators, emperors have tried to eradicate the church of Christ. They have swung their hammers with great ferocity, but every one of them broke his hammer on the anvil of the church of Christ. The church eventually prevails, even if the outlook is bleak, even if hopes are diminished, 
eventually Christ's church prevails because Christ prevails, and he preserves his church. So this should give us great confidence that no matter how much our culture turns against us, Christ's church will prevail, and God will preserve his people. Amen. Dan, what additional lessons can we learn by looking back at the French Reformation? I think the French Reformed Protestants of the 16th century can help us to prepare for persecution. You don't have to be a prophet to realize that there's great possibility in the years ahead of persecution coming to Christians in the Western world. We certainly haven't faced the persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world currently face, but it's very possible that Christians in the Western world will face increasing persecution in the coming decades. So we should prepare now. We should not be surprised when persecution does come to us. And now is the time for us to decide. Will we stand firm for Christ? Come what may, as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, or will we bow the knee to Caesar or to some other anti-Christian persecutor? The time to make that decision is not in the moment of persecution. We must decide in advance to stand for Christ, trusting that in that moment of persecution, he will give us strength to endure. I think we also can learn from the French Reformed the great benefit, the great blessing of psalm singing. The French Reformed were known for their psalm singing. Roman Catholic worship at the time was dominated by choirs composed of men and boys. There was very little to no congregational singing in Catholic churches. And the French Reformed incorporated congregational singing into their Lord's Day worship. Every French Reformed family would carry their Bibles as well as their Psalter to worship on the Lord's Day. Typically, their uh, churches would be on the outskirts of town, and so they would pass through the town on their way to the church building singing psalms. This, of course, would attract the attention of Roman Catholics who would hear them singing songs, and they would be incensed by this. So they would harass the French Protestants verbally, sometimes physically, as they're angered by this psalm singing. Just singing the psalms got people mad. Why would that anger you? Singing God's word. Now, we shouldn't sing psalms solely for the reason of angering the enemies of God. We certainly don't set out to offend people unnecessarily, but... The proper worship of God should be offensive to the enemies of God. The enemies of God should not be comfortable with our worship of the one true God. So if they are comfortable, perhaps we should reconsider how we worship. Are we truly worshiping as God has commanded us to worship? Again, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive, but the enemies of God should be uncomfortable. They should be offended when we worship the true God as he has commanded, because they know they are not included in that worship, and they know as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that they deny that one true God. And so our worship that is reformed according to the word of God is glorifying to God, but it's also offensive to the ears of those who are his enemies. That's an interesting insight, Dan. Why do you think we have lost the Psalms today, assuming we have? I don't know that we've entirely lost psalm singing. There still are many Reformed churches that love to sing psalms, that every Lord's Day sing from the Psalter. I think we must admit that some of the tunes of the Psalter from the past are not as easy to sing for people today. Some of us today are not able to sing from the Genevan Psalter, for example. Some of the tunes are not the easiest to sing, but there are many excellent Psalters that have been produced in recent years that are singable. They're very edifying in worship. There is great pressure, influence from those who advocate contemporary Christian music. 
And there certainly are edifying songs from uh, contemporary Christian worship movements. So we don't want to denigrate that or diminish that, dismiss it. So it shouldn't be one or the other. It should be a desire, a movement to implement more psalm singing in worship on the Lord's Day. Even if you're not only singing psalms, at least sing some psalms. I always say I don't believe in exclusive psalmody, but I believe in enthusiastic psalmody. I am very enthusiastic about singing the Psalms because every human emotion is expressed in the Psalter from joy, peace, contentment, but also lament, fear, anger. And Christ is presented in the Psalter. Even though we might not see the name of Jesus, Christ is revealed in the Psalter in such a clear way that he's unmistakable. Every Psalm is about Christ. Every Psalm is a messianic Psalm. And so what a great joy to sing about Christ from words written by the Holy Spirit that are pleasing to God and edifying to God's people. Your comments remind me of the passage in Ephesians 5.19, where the believer is instructed when we meet together to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. There is an aspect of singing that is horizontal. We are singing with one another. But as we are talking about the French Reformation, when we are singing the psalms, we are singing through time in solidarity, aren't we? This is why I'm such an advocate of psalm singing, is that the psalms transcend every culture, every time, every place. They are truly universal. Many of them written more than 3,000 years ago by people who certainly were not Western. The Psalter is not exclusive to Europeans or descendants of Europeans. The Psalter is cherished by every tribe and tongue across the earth. The psalms are not limited by culture. The Holy Spirit transcends every culture. And so what a great unifying force the Psalter is, that when we sing the words written by the human author, David and others, of course, also written by the divine author, we are really united with our brothers and sisters across time. Now those in the church triumphant, we in the church militant today, have a real connection with the church triumphant, the saints who have been translated to their heavenly reward because we all sing from the same songbook. There's a great sense of unity and oneness that comes with singing from the Psalter, uniting Christians in all times and all places. As we prepare to close, let me ask you an overarching question, and you alluded to this before. Why should we study the French Reformation? Why should we have this discussion today? I think we should study the history of Christianity for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is that this is family history. These are our spiritual ancestors. They're not just names and dates in history books. We have a very real connection to our forefathers and our foremothers of the faith. And so this is a personal history for all of us, all of us who are Christians, all of us who are Reformed Christians, that these are our family members. We might not have blood relation, but we have a very real connection to those who came before. And I think they can give us great lessons for life today. They can be inspiring to us. The French Reformed facing such persecution. They still persevered, were faithful to God. As we perhaps face persecution in the West in the days ahead, may we be inspired by their faithfulness. And also, we can be inspired in their commitment to Reformed theology, when it certainly wasn't the popular thing to do. There was not any uh, cultural advantage to being Reformed. They counted the cost and 
devoted themselves to Reformed theology, what they saw as the theology of the Bible, and devoted their lives to it. And so we today can be inspired by that, can be encouraged by their faithfulness and God's faithfulness to them, and he certainly will be faithful to us as well. You've been listening to The Virtuous Mind, a podcast from Providence Christian College. The mission of Providence Christian College as a Reformed Christian institution is to equip students to be firmly grounded in biblical truth, thoroughly educated in the liberal arts, and fully engaged in their church, their community, and the world for the glory of God and for service to humanity. We'd love to have you visit our campus. Providence Christian College is now accepting applications for the upcoming semester. Contact an admissions counselor to learn more. Visit ProvidenceCC.edu.